start the old one first because it's always. They're both starting. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you um, and the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning. Um, God, it um, shakes me a little bit. Um, we go to Mass often, and it makes me aware of how easy it is to take you for granted and forget that when we um, go to receive, we're being invited to participate in your cross. Um, um, not to forget that the life that you offer us comes from that. Strengthen us in our efforts to enter that cross, um, how hard to do for most of us, if not all of us. Um, I don't think anyone um, likes suffering particularly. There's a great dignity to suffering that our world has lost. Um, it goes with being human and having choices and making mistakes. So um, strengthen us in our resolve um, um, to be glad knowing that there's this great dignity that we're asked to uphold, to always remember when we receive. So for um, the life that you offered us this morning and your words, um, to be careful of our riches, storing them up. Um, we can't take them with it. That was your warning, your reminder today. Um, to be clear about what we're living for and what we're going to take with us when we leave. For all that you do to call us to you, um, for the burdens that leaves us with to live in a world in which people don't hear these things, doesn't make our lives easier, I know that. For all that you offer in the way of support, we are grateful. We ask for a special blessing for, it's Melvin? Mm -hmm. For Melvin, um, we, uh, we prayed for him last week. He's left us now. Um, receive him into your kingdom. There's a purgatory that our prayers help him. Um, it's got to be a time of joy. Um, he knows where he's going. Um, let a consolation be with all of those who loved him, who let him go. Help them to take a gladness in his parting, his leaving this world, going to a joy. Help us all to carry um, our hope in the promise of that joy in all that we do here, not to forget it in the midst of our struggles. Um, offer a special um, thanksgiving for um, Bob and Marcy, um, particularly Bob, and um, the fact that he's even here, given what's going on with him. Watch over him. Oh, God. Protect him from doctors. Um, protect him from doctors. Um, and me. <laughs> oh, bless your heart, Marcy. God bless you. God bless you. <laughs> Marcy's halfway to heaven, I believe, on that comment. Um, um, Bless both of them, and um, help Bob have a sense of humor with um, so much of the stupid stuff that goes on with bureaucracies and administrations. Um, help him to be patient. Protect him, please. Um, keep him safe as, as much as is possible in this um, trial with his physical issues. And. Um, we're also grateful for uh, David's recovery. Um, 
he looks good, Millie looks good, um, for your presence with them in their trials. Um, and um, the fact that they both look so good right now, um, surround them with your protection, increase their sense of gratitude for each other and having gone through a, um, a trial like this. We all share in them in some way, strengthen all of us to do that. We offer all of these prayers um, in you, Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Can you take out, I, I'm going to, um, actually, let me wait, let me wait. Um, before we read, let me, let me go, oh God, <laughs> oh boy. Let me be clear on what we're doing for the next few weeks. Because I'm, <laughs> in addition to the usual confusion that you have to suffer from me up here, I, I know I've added to them because I've changed the reading list a number of times in the last month, but here's what we're doing. Um, I, I thought about doing Scarlet Letter and decided against it, and last week said we wouldn't do it. We're going to do it. <laughs> we are going to do it. We are. We're going to do it. And let me, let me give you a quick reason why. If I, let me give you a quick reason why. I did my dissertation on, Scar on Hawthorne, and I, some part of me just didn't want to go back. Um, <laughs> Suzanne's been pressing me, and I've been pretty much poopying her, and I went over the play in my mind with her the other night at dinner and described it, and I was stunned when I described it. Actually got it concrete in my mind because it's just been an idea in my head. Um, David, Mill, you haven't been here, but in the last, um, at the end of our work on Chaucer and um, in, in what we picked up in Shakespeare, we've seen a, um, a consistent principle playing out, and that is the role of women in the stories that we've been seeing. In Chaucer, if you, if you put all the stories, I didn't, by the way, I didn't go into this planning this or assuming it. It's been a hundred years since I've done Chaucer, but having done him, I was knocked over by it, absolutely knocked over. When you go through Chaucer and you read him, there's, there's maybe, maybe two good men, two really good men. Theseus, in the story, the Knight's Tale, and you remember that, he's a good ruler. Um, he conquers Hippolyta, he has to use physical force to conquer, and that works, it's not going to be flattering to a modern woman, but... He conquers her and settles things between Panama and Arcite and Emily. He's a good man. He's a good ruler. And you know from our work together that what Chaucer's doing with Theseus is traditionally what people have done. Chaucer's going back to the founding of Western civilization. That's how important this is. Theseus is thought to be the founder of Western civilization, of Athens. So he's a mythic figure that images something great in man and something that great that was given to Athens that wasn't given to any other regime in the world. Chaucer picks that up and goes back and Christianizes him. So he's doing what the epic poets do. He went back and picked up a myth and carried it forward, but transformed it according to another worldview, when it was Christian. So he did a great thing. So the knight who tells the story, presumably he's a good man, Remember in Chaucer's Pilgrims, the knight tells the story. Presumably, he's, he, he has all the signs of being a good man. He's a gentleman, he's courageous, he's polite. And he tells the story of Theseus, who is the founder. When you go through the stories, generally, and come out of them, it seems to me it's hard not to see um, that the women, generally speaking, are far superior to the men. 
far away. The men, for the most part, are scoundrels, really scoundrels. They're selfish, they're self-centered. Um, the, the dominant men who, play, who have stories are church functionaries, they're church officials. They're using their office, their religious office, to profit. So none of them is really attractive. When you set those men against the women, you become aware of a, an amazing fact. The women have no political aspirations. They're not trying to get better, or because once they do, they're entering that political world that men occupy. They stand outside of that world doing something the men don't do. Every one of them is humble, prayerful. The situations they get in ask of them prayers. I can't recall, I can't recall a man saying a prayer in Chaucer unless it may be the friar who says, who says to the widow he's saying a prayer for her when as a matter of fact he's not. He's using her. He's using prayers. So when you look at the men and women, um, you, you come away aware of how selfish men can be, particularly when they're called into a political world where they want to show their talents, get ahead, become wealthy, show how smart they are. Constance, um, Dorigen, um, Griselda, who am I missing? Constance, Griselda, Dorigen, the Priors. She's a little bit vain, but when you look at all the women, they are remarkable for their humility and the way in which, according to the way Chaucer shows them, God seems to be protecting them. That, that their holiness draws something from him. Just take Constance for a guess, because she's constantly in peril, she's constantly in danger, and she constantly escapes. The one woman who's the exception to that is the wife of Bath, and she's in some ways, she's almost worse than the men, except she's not in the church. She's selfish. She uses men. She, um, she uses them for herself. She wants money. She plays her sex. You know. So when, you, when we got out of Chaucer, for me, because I hadn't read him in so many years, I, I had not come away going into it knowing that that's one of the conclusions. But it was impossible to miss it when we'd done it. In my own mind, I had wanted to do Shakespeare's All's Well That Ends Well because of what I remember of her, because she matches up so well with Griselda. In Chaucer's Griselda, she, her, her husband puts her through all of these trials, but what they serve to do is show how constant she is in her vows, what a remarkable woman, and her humility. I wanted to set that up because in some ways she images what the medievals would have associated with Mary and her obedience and Christ. Because if you remember, Christ in his trial said nothing. It was, it was a travesty. If there was any man in the world who, who had a reason for saying something about the people who were persecuting, it would have been Christ. He says absolutely nothing. Mary, I mean, she says yes. And I'm going to come back to that because it goes to where we're going tonight. But I'm just a quick overview. Um, Helena is Shakespeare's treatment of this remarkable woman who remains absolutely faithful to her vows, but she can't be more different from Griselda. Instead of just simply doing her husband's will, she resourcefully um, gives herself to doing all these things she has to do in order to meet these conditions that her husband put on her. 
and she does it remarkably. So when we got out of this period, it seems to me it's impossible not to come out of it, at least for me, without saying, um, without saying, where are the men? Where the hell are the men? What, what in the world's going on? And we're going to see, or see something of that in Merchant tonight when we do Merchant of Venice, because once again, it's going to be a woman who saves this community. So it's, it's really interesting to, to, it wasn't planned to go back over this period and look at these works on the verge of modernity and realize that an old way is, is being lost. It was an old way in which men were thought to be heroic, chivalric, warriors, to defend tonight's fight for their, you know. Um, and to watch that vocation disappear, it's eliminated, it's gone, and enter the modern world and leaving us with this question, what do men do? And, and that in the context of seeing all of these women who are doing these amazing things. So that's where we've been, okay? Just a quick overview. So tonight, so here, to, to, to just quickly pick this up. What I wanted to do tonight and next week is very quickly you can put a wedge in it or something so she can... I'll just wait. Okay. Faithfully. Okay. Um, is um, deal with these questions, who are we in the modern world? If you take God out of the picture, it changes our relationship to ourselves. Who are we? What do we do in a world without God? What are the problems we're facing? And since the purpose of our coming together was to find Christ, it's a very serious question for me now. All of us do our jobs. We go to work. We go to Mass on Sunday. Where do we find Christ? Um, are, are, we, are we assuming that he's not present in our life during the week because we're not at Mass? When In reading these stories, my claim is that we've seen Christ in constant... Dorjan, um, um, who's the, the, the Griselda. One? Griselda, and Helen, and I think more perfectly in Helen than almost any Shakespearean heroine. So we're seeing Portia. I mean, there go go back again. The Divine Comedy. This is two hundred years earlier. When you read the Divine Comedy, it began with this man who was damned, damned. Dante's damned. I mean, you could say in the world term, what woman's going to like him? I mean, the way men and women do. What do they, what do they see in him? You know? Portia loves him. I mean, uh, Beatrice loves him. Mary loves him. Mary gets Lucia. Lucia gets Portia. Portia gets Vigil, Virgil. He's saved. So in this period, we've been looking at our human nature, seeing that in some ways we don't deserve the love that we get, and watching these extraordinary figures, particularly women, doing these things in this period of transition. So that's where we've been, okay? And we're going to pick it up tonight with um, Merchant Venice. Are you going to connect that with why you changed your mind about that? <coughs> yeah, so that's, anyway, that's where we are, okay? Now, <laughs> looking for, here's what we're doing, um, and then I want to pick up with our class tonight. So we've been on the verge of modernity, 
That's where we've been. We were going to do T.S. Eliot and then Dostoevsky. And that brings us into the modern world. We were going to do T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral, which takes us back to Thomas Beckett, and Dostoevsky in a Russian world, but very modern. Um, and that's our work. But the other night, is, so I decided against the Scarlet Letter, but Suzanne and I were talking about it, and I went through it, and it stunned me because once again, and this has to do with America's founding. Now, Hawthorne's going back to our founding, and he's, he's treating a Puritan founding. He's very critical of this Puritanism. He, he was Puritan. He was raised Christian. He was a Puritan. But he, I said this when we did Melville's Moby Dick, you know, that both Melville, Melville and Hawthorne were the two great poets who unmasked the Puritan nature of our American polity. Hawthorne's doing it in Scarlet Letter, and he's doing it with an issue that deals directly with our sex. Dinsdale, who's the minister, and Hester come together, they conceive a child illegitimately. He's the minister. He's not going <coughs> to confess himself. She's left to bear this burden alone. She gives birth to Pearl, their child. And the, the community, um, this is, the, I'm going to give the story away. The community scorns her. Absolutely scorns her. And the irony is, at some point in the movie, this is, Hawthorne is uh, so amazing. Book. Hawthorne is so amazing. Um, halfway through the story, even though the community has scorned it because they, she's a sign of sin, and who in the world can associate with sin? Suddenly, all of these women start coming to her because they know she has a capacity for empathy that they don't. And she becomes this healer. There it is again, another woman. Where's the man? I don't want to put dims because he has a, I'm not going to tell you what happens, but it has a... But once again, it, it's really interesting to me to watch this, this transitionary period from the medieval Catholic world to a modern Puritan secular world in which these women do these amazing things. And none of them do it in the political realm. They're not aspiring for political office. Helen is, is not challenging anybody in the palace. She wants nothing to do with that. Portia neither. Portia has no political aspirations. She goes to Venice to save her husband or her husband's friend. So in these women, there's this great capacity for love, for empathy, for healing. Anyway, I didn't want to lose this because it's, it's, it's amazing to me. It's, it's making me a little bit ashamed. So I look at our manhood and think, what, you know, what, what, am in, what am in, I mean, when you grow up in our world today, take God out of it, what is there to do except become successful? And we're all defined by it. All of us. None of us escape it. It's our world. Where do we find Christ? Where do we find Christ? Do we just continue going on that way and go to church? How do we live them? So in these works, a central question for me is, in these works on modernity where this change is taking place, where we're losing God, because this is a world in which God doesn't exist anymore, where is Christ? Where do we find him? What's been our... Okay, so, next week we'll do Othello. If you've got it, bring it. If you don't, don't worry. What I'm going to do is, uh, tonight I'm going to do a quick overview of Merchant. I just want to touch on things to pick up these things. Next week we'll do the same thing with Othello. I want to go over Othello, except here's, here's the major thing. 
it'll make more sense after we're done tonight. We've already done Merchant, but it's been a while, so. But next week we're doing Othello, and here's the, here's the question that I want to ask, so in case we don't have time at the end. Merchant of Venice is the comic treatment of Venice, the commercial recovery. This is our republic, it's us. This is the comic treatment. Othello's the tragic. Same regime, very same regime, but it's under a tragic aspect. A man and woman come together, declare they love, they get married. That husband's going to kill his wife at the end. Othello's going to kill Desdemona. And it's interesting because he's unlike every other hero, tragic hero in Shakespeare's canon. He's unlike any other hero. Every other hero has some purpose. They want to get to something and they go after it and commit a sin. Othello doesn't. Othello is worked on by this man, Iago. So here, here's an instance, I mean, I want everybody to think about this. Two things. One is, first, what is a, there's, there's no greater villain in all of Shakespeare's plays. None. And Richard III is a king. He's a king of a whole people. His evil doesn't come close to Iago's. Not close. Hey, be still. <laughs> be, he, he, hold on. No. Would you stop? No, here, Valerie, I'm really serious. I'm actually serious. I'm really serious right now. I'd like you to hear things. If you've got a question, raise a question. I'm serious. If you look at Shakespeare's canon, there's no other, there's no other villain that comes close to what Iago does. This is in a democracy. There's nobody he comes into contact with that he almost doesn't destroy. He has that kind of control over people. It's absolute. Whoever he deals with, he destroys. He's not a king. He doesn't have political power. He insinuates himself into this other stuff. But, but the object is Othello and Desdemona. That's a marriage. And he leads the husband to kill his wife. So what he does in that play strikes directly at love. Directly. So here's my two questions. What is it about the commercial regime, what is it about a democracy that seems to open and invite that kind of evil? It's hidden, it's secret, it's not out in the open, it's not a king working, you know, doing things that people can disagree. He's hidden, he's secret, nobody sees him, they call him honest Iago. He works this evil. Um, what is it about this democracy that makes an opening for that kind of evil? So I'm asking a pretty serious question about us. And two, what is it about the nature of a democracy that makes Othello so susceptible to him? This is a man, I'm gonna, when we get there next week, you'll see, I'm gonna read passages from Othello. When you hear those passages and you set them against all of Shakespeare's other lovers, those other lovers aren't gonna come close to declaring what he does. They're, they're among the most extraordinary passages declaring love in all of Shakespeare. I'm not exaggerating. He loves this woman. He loves her. And yet, what Iago does brings him to the brink of doing something absolutely against... I mean, it's, it's striking directly at love. So there's something in this, this world that's inimical to love, inherent in the regime. So you've got the comic treatment, in Merchant of Venice, you've got the tragic treatment of Othello. So what I wanted to do was, we've just finished All's Well. We're on the threshold of modernity. We're going to do Merchant of Venice, Othello. Then we're going to go to Scarlet Letter, in, in which we're going to deal with abortion. 
or I'm sorry, I mean, um, infidelity. Infidelity and adultery. Sorry, that's adultery. Infidelity, adultery. Um, so the sexual sin, once again, is going to be right at the center of the book, and um, it's and, and it's in an explicitly religious context. The father of that child's the minister. So Hawthorne's going to be looking at something distinctively American, just the way Melville did in Virgin of Venice. No. Or I mean, uh, more be different. So we're on the verge of modernity. We're here looking at this radical change that's taking place as we're leaving Christendom behind. We're ending in the modern world. We'll do these works. Um, we're going to do Othello next week. After that, we're doing Anthony and Cleopatra. I know that's going to sound strange. We're going back to Two Lovers, but um, the reason I chose it is because those two lovers exist just before Christ comes into the world, and Shakespeare's going to be showing. The, well, the reason I chose it is because, I don't know if I should give this away. Everything about the play indicates that something's happening that people don't see. That's why we're doing can we look around in our world and are we aware of things we don't see? That's part of what we've been doing together. Not just what we consciously know, but are there other things that should make us question ourselves? What are we not seeing? What do we don't, you know? So we'll do Anthony and Cleopatra, and, um, and then after that we'll do Eliot <laughs> and Brothers Karamazov. So let me stop. That's settled. I'm sorry I mean, for all the because I said we weren't going to do Scarlet. Are we going to do Scarlet Letter before or after Anthony and Cleopatra? After. Do Anthony and Cleopatra when we finish Othello. So it's two doing Shakespeare. Then we'll do Scarlet Letter and we're into America in the modern world and we'll do Elliot. And any questions about that? Yes. We're doing Merchant of Venice. Next is Othello. And is next Scarlet Letter. Anthony and Cleopatra. And then Scarlet Letter. And then Hawthorne and the Scarlet Letter. Right. And then Anthony Elliot. and Cleopatra. No, no. We're doing. Here, let me go through this again. Yes, please. I know. It's my own fault because I've been. Next week, we're going to do what we're doing tonight. We're going to do just a brief overview of Othello. We're not going to go into the play a lot. It's a, it's a review. We've already done it. Okay. I just want to highlight some things to underline this threshold of modernity, where we are. Um, so next week, we do just an overview of Othello. <coughs> After that, we will do Anthony and Cleopatra. We're still in Shakespeare. But we're going back to a pre-Christian world. It's for Christianity. You'll see when we get there why I think it, it has to do with love and the way the world works on love, what it does to it. Um, and then we will do Scarlet Letter and then Eliot and Dostoevsky. And that would be it. So next week is just a review, just a review. Okay. Thank you. I think that that's just setting out what we're doing, and I'm trying to give you a sense of why. And um, one of the reasons I, I wanted to, I wasn't going to do Scarlet Letter, but I was just stunned when I think about what, what these women are showing. And um, I'm going to come back to tonight to interview with Paul as well. But, okay, any questions? Are we all?
Okay, can you take a look at Shakespeare's sonnets? Take a look at 129. This is a new sonnet. We haven't read this before. Um, And then I want to do again 146. Sonnet 129 is a sonnet about, let me see. The action of the sonnet is an expression of lust, an expression of lust. The reason I did this is because we talked about the importance of the, the polarities in, in All's Well between lust and marriage. Because remember, in All's Well, Bertram and the soldiers are given to lust. They want to use these women. They're going to go off to war. and make all these promises. They did it with Diana and then abandoned her. But in Bertram, you see a, um, a male figure using women to satisfy his own lust. And we know that there are camp prostitutes, women who do the same thing for their own advantage. Um, but lust in that play clearly expresses a principle of disintegration. It breaks things down. Men don't hold to their vows. They just use women and go on. Marriage is unitive. It's integrative. It pulls together. It holds people. It's a principle of unity. And we all know that this is a time of um, terrible struggles in marriage in our, in our, in our age. It's, um, it's, one of the, it's, it's one of the, I think it's one of the passions of our age. In this poem, he's expressing lust. He's not describing a person commenting on it. He's actually describing the action. I hope that's clear. In all the other sonnets, he's, he's expressing the love for a beloved. In this one, he's describing, the, he's imitating the action of lust. So it's onomatopoeic. We can hear lust, if I can put it that way, okay? So watch the structure of the sentences, the way opposites clang, and the way sentences break up. Because what he's doing is imitating that sense of a passion getting a hold of somebody. So what the poem is imitating is the actual action of lust and its effects, okay? John 130. 129. I'm oh, sorry, I cut my eyes. It is 129. It's on 129. The expensive spirit and waste of shame is lust in action. So he begins with the definition, and now we're, he's, he's going to render that action. The expensive spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. Until action, lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust. You can hear how choppy the lines are, right? Set that against. There. Um, just to see um, the sun above. Watch the length of the lines and how they smooth out. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with a remover to remove. You can hear how calm those lines are, right? Mm -hmm. Now set those next to the expensive spirit is a waste of shame is lust in action. Until action, lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust. Now look at the opposites. No sooner, enjoy no sooner, but despise straight. No sooner have it than we 
our, hate ourselves for doing it. No sooner enjoyed, no sooner, but despise it straight. Past reason hunted, and no sooner had, past reason hated, as a swallowed bait. On purpose laid to make the taker mad, mad in pursuit and in possession so. Had having and in quest to have, extreme. A bliss in proof, I think we're, I mean, remember, remember Bertram's words? He's gonna be in heaven when he makes love to Diana. And we know, 10 minutes later, he's gonna take his ring and leave. A bliss in proof and proved a very woe. Before a joy proposed, behind a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. Any questions? Does everybody, does everybody see the paradox in those last lines? To shun the heaven that leads men to this hell? Is that paradox clear? No? Yes? Is it? Are we okay? Okay. 146. Do you want to offer an explanation? Go ahead, Doc. It just means to shun the heaven that you think you're going to get when you take possession of your lady love. Yeah, I put it... We anticipate the pleasure like it's going to be heaven. We're going to enjoy this completely. It's going to... Add, it's going to answer our longing for a pleasure. Once we have it, it'll be like heaven. We'll rest in it. But no sooner do we have that than we know it was not a heaven. It's one of those illusions. And yeah? And it'll lead you to hell. I'm, tr I'm trusting, yeah. I'm trusting we all know that. And it doesn't have to do just with sex. It can be in lots of things in our lives. We set up these expectations for these things and make of them something worse than they are. 146. We did this last week, but since it's so close to what we're talking about. Remember, sinful earth here is the body, but it doesn't just mean the body. It means that excessive attachment to earthly things that, that can so corrupt us and what we do with our minds and hearts. 146. So he's, he's describing this struggle between the center of his soul and its goodness, what it wants, and the way he gives too much importance to earthly things that cost him. 146, poor soul, the center of my sinful earth. My sinful earth, these rebel powers array. We dress them up and present them like they're all this good when they're not. Why dost thou pine within and suffer dirt? Painting thy outward walls so costly gay, we put on this pretense that we're happy about things. Why so large cost, having so short a lease, dost thou upon thy fading mansions spend? Shall worms inheritors of this excess eat up thy charge? <clears throat> Is this thy body's end? Then so live thou upon thy servant's loss, and let that pine to aggravate, to increase thy store. <coughs> By terms divine, in selling hours of dross, within be fed, without be rich no more. So shalt thou feed on death that feeds on men, and death once dead, there's no more dying then. Is everybody okay? Somebody want to paraphrase that? Wow. Somebody. 
Mary. Sorry. Well, I think there's a cost to that. It's a it's a fake cost. It's a it's, you're doing something which you think is great, but then shall worms inherit us of this excess? I mean, I don't think I want to go that way. Yeah. I mean, short term, maybe joy, but a long term death. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a poem affirming renunciations. We keep feeding our body, we keep giving our desires to the world at the expense of our soul. Mm -hmm. The way we defeat death is by making renunciations, giving up those things. Because once we do that, we defeat death, and there's more, and we're with Christ. There's no more dying then. So it's a it's a poem affirming renunciations, denying the body, the world. You know. One of the reasons for choosing it tonight is the reading this morning. For those of you, if you follow or we're at Mass, you know that in this morning's reading, Christ was giving the parable of the guy who was laying up his treasures, realizing he didn't have enough barn space, so he went and <laughs> built larger barns, <laughs> thinking that that was going to... I can't... How did... What it was Christ warning the... Well, the God... God came to the guy. What was the warning, Doc? Does anybody, would anybody remember? God said, anybody? you fool. Huh? He said, said you fool. Tomorrow your life will be demanded. This yeah. night your life will yeah. be demanded. Yeah. He builds more barns, larger barns, thinking that he has more stores. And yeah. Instead of denying himself, and then God actually speaks in. Say the words again. Say. Tomorrow your life will you be fool, demanded you right. of you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. your life will be asked. I think the most important sentence of that is almost the middle one. Why so large cost having so short a lease? Yeah. <laughs> you put all of that in there, but it's a very short lease you right, have on right. it, and it's gone. Right, right. What does the mind gain? <laughs> yes. Okay. So, very quickly, um, this is an overview. I'm, we're not going to, I'm going to look at uh, Merchant of Venice for a few minutes, but. What I wanted to do was pull together some of the stuff that we've been doing for the last couple of months just to <coughs> underscore it before we go on, because we're going to leave this threshold, this, the threshold of modernity here in Shakespeare's writing. Um, we know from Merchant of Venice that there is no God. The characters making up this characters are basically Catholics, but they're not living their faith. They're, they're invested in money, and that's what preoccupies them. I'll go there in a minute, we'll see it. Um, the Copern so, Shakespeare's writing, aware of lots of influences, I just singled out three of the more important. Machiavelli's already written, Shakespeare knows him. It's so clear he's read him. In Machiavelli's prints, Machiavelli's making the argument that, that um, what he's doing is giving a treatise to a king explaining to him what he should do if he wants to be a good ruler, how to do it. So he's reducing politics to a science. This is so crucial if you do this, this. Um, and the fundamental principle of his work is basically the ends justify the mean. Now stop and just think about that for a minute. If you take God out of the world, get him out, the highest end is political. It's bringing order to everybody. In our, in our world, it's success, being successful, having money. That's the aim of everybody in our world. 
get God out of it, and that's what defines everybody's lives. So for Machiavelli, what he's doing is giving the, explaining how the prince can achieve these ends by doing certain things. And one of the things you come away understanding is that in this world, because politics is the end of things, there's no God, it's, we, he certainly doesn't have a sense of the inherent dignity of man. What we know to, from our, our founding documents, inalienable rights, the dignity of man. If the ends justify the means, then it means man's expendable. You don't like what the guy's doing? Fire him. Um, you've got a political end, send those men into danger. Even doing, we're, um, Suzanne and I are watching, starting to watch um, Black, Black Hawk Down. Or the movie? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and you know all the Ben Gu if you've seen the Ben Gazing movie, I mean, you, it's, it's hard to watch it and not become furious. You watch people going off to their death because of the stupid things that people do. Just that people aren't more careful of human life. And, and we're living in the midst of a Holocaust. I mean, abortion is the greatest cause. It's our sin. It's our sin. It's all of ours. It's our sin. We live in an age in which, for our practical conveniences, we, we can dismiss the life of others. Uh, human beings are objects or things. We're back in the world of the alien. So Machiavelli's treaties makes this argument. And, and I'm arguing that in Helena and all's well, he's taking Machiavelli and twisting it. We'll come to that in a second. But. So the principle here is the ends justify the means. Whatever you need to do to keep order in the quality, you do. Even if it means the annihilation of human life, getting rid of human life. Copernicus is a scientist. He discovers that the, um, the Earth isn't at the center of the universe, the Sun is. That the Earth takes its place out among the planets, and because it does, it means you can begin to study it. it because remember, the only knowledge that was possible in the ancient world was associated with planets. They were eternal. Venus, Mars, Jupiter, that's why they gave them the name of gods. Earth takes a place out there now. Now we can know scientifically. But one of the, one of the byproducts of that view is this. Science rests on determinisms. What can't be other than they are, right? Determinisms, what's determined, we call them laws, or whatever you want to call them. What can't be other, necessities. If we discover them, we can repeat them, we can predict things, we can get control of nature, we can help ourselves, improve our lives. Those are the basic assumptions of modern science. Yeah? Um, so, a century and a half later, two centuries later, Freud says, as a scientist, the determinisms of the human soul are these. Freud claims man has no free will. That's from Freud. He's explicit about that. Man has no free will. The determinisms defining his character are polymorphous perverse instincts and edible complex. And there's all these mechanisms to protect them. Transference, compensation, I mean, you can go down the line. But it reduces the human person to a set of dynamics, dynamisms, structures. So that you can, you can know the soul. Shakespeare didn't believe that. He puts in, in Hamlet, remember, he puts in Polonius, I think I can get to the center of this man's soul. What Shakespeare's showing is to presume to know the human soul is one of the greatest presumptions because the only person who could do that is God. 
So in the sciences, we think we can, man has no free will, he's a product of these, pro these forces, and if we analyze them, we can get a hold of them, control them, solve our problems. So we're watching this gradual degradation, this loss of dignity. We, we, are, we don't have free will. We're not in the middle of an adventure, because adventure implies a free will. We can make choices. And that, that we're, we're a product of these forces, evolutionary, psychological, whatever they are. So Copernicus um, um, sets out this theory, and actually it, it lends credence to Machiavelli because it says um, what it does after Copernicus is encourage everybody to believe that science is going to give them the answer to everything. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. I mean, I God hold. gave us a brain, and if he wanted to know the world isn't flat, he gave people those to find out it's not. So there's reasons for to have that science. Good, good. Wait, I hope I. Wait, I hope I'm not. I hope I'm not. I'm not. I hope I'm not. Let me go back. I hope I'm not being heard to be saying science is bad. What I'm trying to just show is negative in some of the byproducts of what's going on. Okay. Don't put everything to Freud because Freud had his own problems. I think that he had his own boyhood. I'm not putting everything on Freud and trying to use because he has such a dominant influence in the 20th century. And by the way, not only a dominant influence in the sciences but in literature because if you look at literary criticism in the last 50 years, most of the people doing literary criticism are practicing what they believe are Freud's model. They're reading literature that way. So. But science is the study of the handiwork of God. Yes. And you have to define science that way. If you take God out of the picture, then all of a sudden science becomes very... You think, you think that you can say this is the way human nature goes, but Thomas Aquinas said very clearly, grace affects nature. Therefore, you can always find an exception. Because our grace, our prayers, what we put on this earth will affect the nature, will affect what God has created. And if you don't say that science is a study of the handiwork of God, then you do not have the right demeanor to really be a scientist. Well, science would science would agree with that. <laughs> let me opinion. yeah, let me try to put this more positively. I'm trying I'm I'm yeah. maybe putting this too negatively. Saint Thomas would say that um, religion and science are ultimately reconcilable yes. because science gives us a knowledge of determinism so I don't want to I don't want to what my concern right now is I want to I want to put out some of the dark things in modernity and maybe I'm overstating science shows us the determinism of things and in doing that it can help us manage our world so that's a good thing so we can give a diagnosis of somebody's illness and help cure it whatever they are right but to give you an example fire will burn a person unless it's Polycarp, because Polycarp is full of grace, and that fire would not burn him, so they had to stab him. So therefore, grace will affect nature. And you cannot say, yes, you can figure out determinants, but you have to factor in the exceptions. Yeah, here's, oh boy. I didn't get the feeling when you were talking about Copernicus that you were talking about it dogmatically. I thought you were just saying that was his point of view at that time. Yeah, what I was Some of the points of view being expressed now, are ages past then 
right. with other things that have now yeah. come to light to bring right. us to where we're at today. One of the reasons I brought in Copernicus, I want to be careful, because let me, I mean, I just <laughs> underline it, because what Valerie was saying is, is true, and I don't want to, I hope I wasn't giving a too negative reading on it. I believe personally, and, and Thomas believes, that the ultimate source of science and religion is God, so that they're absolutely compatible. They, they should be. I want to respond to Mary's in a second, but I just want to underscore that. Sciences are not inherently bad. They're good in the sense that they go to determinism, things as they are, so that's a help. The danger is when science denies man's free will and says we can explain man by determinisms at the expense of everything else, then we're in a more than a problematical world. That's one of my concerns right now. Because, and I don't want to go there, but we live in a much darker world than Shakespeare did, but he's at the beginning of it, and I want to open these things up because that's where they begin, right here. To, to take up Mary's point, Thomas says, and the church fathers have always said, grace perfects nature. Because, because God is the source of all of them. So he can. So I remember Father James one time coming up to me perplexed because he was trying to respond to a mother who was so troubled because her son was um, crippled. And my response to the father was immediately, it would be that way, it would have been that way 10 years ago, it'll be ten, the same 10 years. I said, yeah, he is. And she, but when he's in heaven, those imperfections are gone. Nobody, nobody's going to go to heaven. I, I don't believe children who die as children. I believe, my belief, I may be wrong, the parents of a child who dies, if they get to heaven, they're going to see, they're, going, they're waiting, a surprise is going to be waiting for them because they're going to see that child fully perfected. Because nothing goes into heaven that isn't fully perfected. God will do what, he, we don't know, I mean, we, you know, I mean we're, we're alive and have our wills and we want to do the best we can, but if somebody's life has to be cut off when they're two, I, I don't believe, knowing our God, that he's going to leave it that way. Amen. Everything about our nature. If you look at the nature of man the way God made him, God made, God made us become images of himself. I'm going to go to this in a minute. It's crucial for what we're doing. We're all images of God. We have free will, human beings. We were meant to become sons and daughters, his children. When we get there, we should be looking at our father. So anybody who goes to heaven, somebody dies at two. The parents are going to I mean, what a surprise. Imagine the surprise waiting in those parents when they see that kid a glory. Yeah, but at the moment, the sorrow blinds that. Yeah, right. Well, and I don't think it's a sorrow. Sometimes I think it's beliefs that we just don't believe properly sometimes. Our wrong beliefs get in our head and darken the way we deal with things. Here, last thing, quick. The Reformation thinkers. A really important thing here, we, you know from our work in literature, according to Aristotle, all literature consists of an action. The plot is an imitation of an action, a beginning, a middle, and end. The plot, the plot, imit... God, am I getting, my mind is so... Imitates that action. It does. The, we, know, we know the action through the plot. This happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. Those are visible. But we know in that plot, that sequence, oh, I know where it's going to go. That's what's been. We know in that sequence that an, an, an invisible spiritual action movement is taking place. Helena, Achilles, 
Hamlet, doesn't matter. That, that in Helena's trials, something inwardly is taking place that we can't see. The only way we know it is through visible things. But every one of us, every one of us in this room knows. We all, we all are visible to each other. But every one of us knows that we all, each one of us carries something inwardly inside of us that nobody can see except God. And that over the course of our lives, that inward life very often matures, hopefully, and changes. We get better. And we hope it will be visible in our actions. So the plot is an imitation of an action. <coughs> now, before we go on, I want to pick up something Mary said. It goes to this fundamental thing that I want to raise in a second. A, a, a pure empiricist science, just a pure empiricist, who believes that we can't know anything other than what the senses deliver, will not be able to see the workings of grace. <coughs> will not. Because he cannot conceive of a causality of the spirit. He can only conceive of material causalities. I hope that's clear. Let me say it again. An empirist who believes that all knowledge depends on what we know with the senses, nothing more, will never be able to explain a causality of the spirit. He can't see that. It's beyond his senses. He can't prove it. Yes? If you go back over to the plays we've been watching, Shakespeare's not bound by empiricist causalities. Because miracles take place. It, there was one here. Helena cured the king. And she goes after Bertram, and whether Bertram knows it or not, he's gone. <laughs> um, very often in Shakespeare's plays, miracles happen. They come into the plot. You can't explain them scientifically. Very often, scientists will misread Shakespeare because they can't account for it. Their reason won't go there. Shakespeare knew that. So, but And watch. When miracles happen, they're always in accord with the laws of nature. They perfectly accord with what's going on. So you can miss them. So very often, Christians can assume a causality of the Spirit Sometimes wrongly, that's why the church is so guarded about it, and sometimes scientists can't see them. That's why we're asked to bring faith and reason together. You know that the church, when it hears about miracles, will be tremendously guarded. They're not going to just, because people with religious imaginations can sometimes claim wild things. We, we are asked in our church to bring faith and reason together, always to work together. That's our faith. In the Reformation, you remember that most of them, this bears on our plays because we saw it, um, or Lefew said, miracles don't exist anymore. That's where we were in our play. In the Reformation, remember, most of the Reformation thinkers took the sacraments away. Luther did, Calvin did, Calvin took them all away. When you take miracle, the sacraments away, you take away miracle from the natural order. Everything then becomes dependent on faith and you have no way in which to use reason to validate or enter those mysteries. You cannot. Reason's gone. So the Reformation thinkers, the greatest of them, denied man's free will. That man was corrupt. He was depraved. His, his powers of reason were depraved. The only thing that could save him was grace. It was only because man was touched by grace that his, reasons, his powers of reason could be well used at all. Here's, where I, here's where, I, where I want to go with this, because it's so important. Um, the Protestant divines claimed that man was depraved. The effects of the fall were complete. 
that man was saved by what they called a justification by faith. And by justification, that's Paul's word, by justification they meant God covered them with a grace that um, made their salvation possible. Now here's where I want to go and I want to underscore this because it's so important. According to the Protestant device, the, the, the theology of justification means that God's grace is imputed. Imputed. This is consistent with all of the Reformation thinkers. That is, it's external. Somebody, I don't know if it was Luther, it may have been somebody responding to Luther, gave the image of, to, to illustrate it, of snow covering dung on a field. That it leaves the dung as it is, it's just covered. A Catholic doesn't believe that we're depraved. We believe that we're wounded and that we're, amidst, we're in the midst of an adventure and a struggle. And the call for, not, for us is not to live an imputed grace, something merely external. This is so crucial. It's not to live merely an external grace. It's to become holy, to change our inward life. And we believe we can't do that without the sacraments, without something miraculous taking place all the time. That's why we participate in that. So when we participate in the sacraments, we do it believing that God is helping us to do something we cannot on our own. Now stop and think about the importance of this just for a second before we go on. For the, for the fundamentals, at least, the fundamentals, not the high Protestant, but the fundamentals. The fundamentals will say, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I remember watching the, the, the God is Dead movie, some, and at the end of the movie, the, the guy wants to say, do you believe in Jesus Christ? He's your Lord, and the guy says yes, and he's, I will, by the way, I believe that. If somebody says that, I believe Christ hears it. So I'm not denying that. I don't want to. But I want you to just think about the difference because in a, in a world in which reason and faith go together, in the world that we've been looking at, human beings come to a point and they have a recognition. The peripatia, the, we've been talking about the action of a play, the peripatia, the turn, the moment of recognition, where suddenly you see something and your life turns. Okay? That, that means in Aristotle's world, in a Catholic world, you recover your ground in nature. Reason and faith come together again in that moment and you turn. Okay? For the fundamentalist, not all Reformation thinkers were fundamental, but Calvin, and it was, for Calvin, you know, you were predestined. You were either going to be damned or, so the whole work of free will is undermined. But, not in Shakespeare's world, okay? So, um, this is just a quick review of what we carried into All's Well That Ends Well, because remember in All's Well That Ends Well, we were in a play in, in which Shakespeare's looking back to a medieval um, monarchical aristocratical world. There are classes, people are stuck in those classes. Helena comes into that world she does something to it to radically transform. It's a woman, again. She performs a miracle on the king, and then what she does with Bertram is nothing less than heroic. I mean, she's an extraordinary figure, so. Could you touch again on, you said imputed? 
At imputed? Imputed just means it's it's uh, assumed, it's external, it's placed on you. Oh. If you by the way, there's a wonderful um, um, there's a link on the web. You go onto it and type in the Reformation idea. They they've done a thing there. I I I don't like some of the things the guy does, but what it means for so many Protestant fundamentalists at least is you can continue doing what you do. You're saved. God saved you. He's my savior. We believe, I mean, we, we, I mean, obedience, we sh should be taken seriously, is we struggle to give ourselves to God and open ourselves to whatever divine work he offers so that we enter into it, that we're changed inwardly, inwardly. And it changes our relation to ourselves, to our world, whatever we do. And we believe that because we believe we're not, we're not depraved, we're wounded, and we believe the sacraments are like a divine medicine, a divine help to heal our wounds. And, and that's an ongoing work. It's an ongoing work. And what it means is constant struggles, trials. Sometimes they get worse the older we get. Sometimes the struggles deepen. I mean, we all know that. I think lots of us think in our, we'd like to retire. <laughs> it's our world. How do we retire from our church? God. Gita, did you have a question? No. No, I'm absorbing it. Okay. I just want to read two passages from All's Well to underscore this again, um, to as a way of just illustrating, highlighting what Helena does. Um, and then I want to look very quickly at Merchant of Venice. If you've got all's well that ends well, remember Act 2, Scene 3, Helen has just performed her miracle on the king. She's a healer. This in itself is extraordinary. Wait, to, to underscore this male-female thing, because I'm, I'm blown away by it. None of the men is going, none of them are going off to war to defend their country. They're not going for political, they're going for motives of vainglory. They want to go to show how tough they are has been. They're going to go to this world in Italy. They're going to fight this war. The king's given them permission. Um, but the only reason is for their own honor, their personal honor. They want to do this to show themselves. Into this world comes Helena. She Remember, she risks her life. Page number? It's Act 2, Scene 3. Let me see. It's the very beginning. But remember, I, right now I'm just... Review, summarizing. Um, she goes to the king offering to cure him. He will have nothing to do with her because all, of, all the scientists have failed. All the physicians, beware of doctors. Science. <laughs> um, all of the physicians have failed. She, she cures him. And Act 2, Scene 3 begins with a few saying, they say miracles are past. And we have our philosophical persons to make modern and familiar things supernatural and causeless. Things that we can't explain, the causalities of the experience, that are of uh, the spirit, that are beyond our senses. Hence it is that we make trifles of terrors ensconcing ourselves into seeming knowledge when we should submit ourselves to an unknown fear. Now, you know that at this point, the, the, 
um, Helena gets her choice. She chooses Paroli, I mean uh, Bertram, and he runs away. Yeah. He runs. Um, and we talked about this, in, this is so crucial, so crucial. I've suggested that, remember, Paroli's means words. In Italian. Sorry? Yeah. No, go ahead. In Italian. Yeah. Paroli's means words. He's all words. So he's a man who lives on surfaces. He's, he, he's covered with colorful clothes. And, in, and I, I, this is so important. In one sense, he images something in Bertram that Bertram doesn't see. That's why last week when we went, I went through those unmasking scenes when immediately after um, Bertram refuses the king and then he's forced to marry Helen. So he's partly unmasked. In the next scene, Paroldes is partly unmasked. At the end of the play, when um, the soldiers expose Paroldes, they want to show Bertram that he's really not who he thinks he is. Immediately after that, Bertram's unmasked. Shakespeare's showing us a visible image of something we can't see in Bertram because to the eyes, he's handsome, he's noble, he's got these gifts. So Shakespeare's made, making us aware. Very often we look out at the world and we see these very successful people with looks, talented, articulate, but underneath, something else. Um, in the Friday morning class, those of you who know Tom Kelly, I don't know, but Tom and Linda are, are psychologists, and we were talking about doubling, and, I, and we got to this point. I was so glad Tom was there. He had this wonderful, I'm sorry he's not here tonight because he just gave a depth to this, but as a psychologist, he knows Freud and Jung, and, you know, and he, he said the doubling, he was describing it in psychological terms, was a mechanism by which we come to know ourselves because in our naivete, in our, in our efforts to seem innocent to the world, we want to seem like we're competent and educated and there's always this dark alter ego each of us has and we have to learn to confront that in ourselves or we remain on surfaces. He calls it the false self. Yeah, yeah. So what Shakespeare's doing, is everybody clear the link between Paroles and Bertram? Bertram, to all appearances, there's no, he belongs to the noble court. He's an image of nobility. Underneath. So Paroles is an image. He gives us a visual image, so Shakespeare's helping us to see this underside. Um, so Bertram takes off, and then when Helena learns that he's taken off, um, Act 3, Scene 2, about line 100. She gets the news. Oh, wait. Here. Sorry. Go back. She gets the news that he's taken off, but before we go there, um, Act 1, Scene 1, line 160. This is the very beginning of the play, play, play when Parolis introduces this notion of virginity that is so crucial. And I want to underscore this. I've been trying to emphasize it now for several weeks. I probably feel like I'm beating you guys over the head. But Helen is contemplating a love for Bertram. He's a lord. She knows he's above her. She has no chance to make a match. Parolis is talking about virginity, and she says, 
in response to him. Now remember, Crowley's is saying, get married because virginity is worth nothing. It's only when you get married that you bring life into the world. So long as you remain a virgin, you're affirming death, is basically what he's saying. Helena says this, Act 1, Scene 1, line 160. Not my virginity yet. There shall your master have a thousand loves, a mother, a mistress, and a friend, a phoenix, captain, and an enemy, a guide, a goddess, and a sovereign, a counselor, a traitor, and a deer. His humble ambition, proud humility. It, the, notice they're all paradoxes. They're combining opposites. His humble ambition, proud humility, his jar and conquered, and his discord, dulcet, his sweet discord. His fate, his sweet disaster, with a world, with a world of pretty fond adoptious Christendoms, that blinking Cupid gossip, that is most girls go around talking about the silly images of another woman, how pretty she is, or, you know. She's put, to, she says, uh, not my virginity, yeah, my, in me, in, there, my master will find all these things. And she lists them all. God send him well, the court's a learning place, and he is one, and then Perolis comes in again. The thing that I wanted to underscore is this, because I don't know of anybody who's done this except Shakespeare in this play. We know that at the center of their faith, our faith, there are two mysteries. One of them is Mary. She had a virgin birth. It was her virgin birth that brought God to us. Okay? Christ took on our human nature and brought a miracle into the world because he, he combined a human and divine nature in one. We know the importance of that because we know that our sin was against God. Since we're human and finite, there's no way we could repay a sin against an infinite God. We're incapable. For that sin to be answered, God had to become a man. I hope that's clear because that's been fundamental to everything we're doing. Well, and Mary had to be pure. Right. She right. Had to be immaculate. Yeah. Before. Yeah. That moves it back a step, but... <laughs> but you need that No, step. I know, and, yeah. Is everybody following on Christ? Our sin was against God. There's no way we could repay it. The only way it could be repaid is if a God took on our nature as a man. That's why Christ did what he did. So he answered an injustice on our part with a justice, and he brought to it a divine love. He brought justice and mercy, law and love together. That's at the center of our faith, okay? So here, Helen is saying, not my virginity yet. What she's showing is that, is that this love for Bertram is born out of something before sex enters into it. She's going to be everything to him, and the gift that she is to him will not be contingent on her doing anything sexually. She doesn't have to give her pleasure. He doesn't have to seek a pleasure. This is all prior to that act. So it's not So whatever pleasure a man looks forward to in having sex with his wife, whatever pleasure she looks forward, this is prior to this. It's absolutely crucial to see that this wholeness exists before the marital act. She loves this man, is going to do her. In that sense, it seems to me, Shakespeare's invoking something that takes us back to Mary and her virginity. Now, I want to put it this way, because I want to put it as starkly as I can, because it stuns me. 
We know, we believe, according to our belief, that woman is the bearer of life. We can't create life ourselves, even as much as in the modern world we want to pretend we can. We can't. The bearer of life is woman. She brings life into the world. Woman typically, traditionally, has always been far more nurturing, far more caring. She, she's the means of, she carries it with her. She brings life into the world. We believe that every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being is made in the image of God. We've been using this term since C.S. Lewis. Anima naturalitae Christiana. The naturally Christian soul. The naturally Christian soul. What child, and here's the extraordinary thing, and I just don't want to, nobody's done this besides Shakespeare. That's why I'm so amazed with this. And why, why I just don't want to loop, miss the opportunity here with a woman. When a woman gives away her virginity, she is opening herself to being. Just underscore that. She's opening her. God, I am that am. We know that God is being itself. When a, when a human soul is created, that we believe, that Christian soul, that soul is created with a, in, an immortal, eternal soul. It will not die. It will be one with God, hopefully. Is that clear? When a woman gives away her virginity then, she's opening herself to being itself, to a power to bring into the world that's something that's immortal. If you close that off with abortion, you're cutting off an image of God. How many women today, I'm, I'm, this is not a criticism of our world, how many women today think about giving birth in those terms? Nobody. We don't think that way. If, they, if we did, I think it would be harder to come to that choice. We don't think that there's something transcendent open to being. That's just beyond the way we think about things. Helena doesn't. Not my virginity yet. In, in me, you, my Bertrand will find. I will be everything to him. And she lists it off. I'm, I'm not aware of another woman in all of Shakespeare who's so complete in her love for a man, the things that she does for him. That's why I set her next to uh, um, Chaucer, Doc Help. Griselda. Griselda. Griselda, yeah. That's why I set her next to Griselda, because her humility is extraordinary. And nothing's going to stop her. I mean, think about <laughs> the reason I, part of the reason that the irony for this is, I, I'm, partly giving away myself, but it's part of the reason for embarrassment. I think if you're a man growing up generally with any sense of manhood, you think of yourself as being a rescuer or protector of, your, of a woman. You're stronger. By the way, I believe that. I'm not going to get in any argument. Men are physically stronger than women. I don't believe they're as tough, personally. Men are physically stronger. I believe women are tougher. Intellectually, two different things. <laughs> what? It's two different things there. Yes. I know it, Marcy. I wouldn't have said it. So here, hold on. I think men traditionally have always looked at themselves as rescuers. What we're finding in these works, and these are all written by men. The, the, the ones who are doing the extraordinary things, who are taking care of men, 
are the women. These are written by men. By the way, I don't want to forget, when we did the women writers, you know, a year ago, yeah. the women had nothing good to say about women. If you remember, what they were doing is exposing all the faults of... Here are these men in Chaucer and Shakespeare, right on the verge of modernity, we're, 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 we're being given authors who show these extraordinary things that go back to Mary Christ. And those are images that we've lost in the modern world, is what I'm suggesting. I, I heard... Uh, Bishop Barron once they asked he was asked about masculinity and he said he said man is not masculine unless he is taken care of another that is true masculinity yeah and until he's taking care of what and taking uh -huh. care of another oh until then he can't say he's a man or that he's masculine yeah. he another way of putting it is, is yeah. unless he learns how to serve unless he learns how I don't think a man can be a man unless he learns how to serve. I don't think a woman can be fully a woman unless she does. I just believe that. In, that that's what we're called to do in marriage. That's our Christian ideal of a marriage. Here, I want to go... Um, so let me stop before... I Now, very quickly, want to go over Portia, and very quickly, and then stop with these questions. Any questions on these things? We're all Here, just quickly, all's well with Shakespeare's play of the city, Paris, this time we were in Paris, it was an aristocratic regime, stratified. It was unnatural because it showed the pretensions of class. When people are born into a class, they think they're better than other people. What Helena brings into that world is something more Catholic, more democratic. She makes it possible for those class stratification, those lines, to soften. Um, so that she and Bertram come together. That's, an that's 200 years before the French Revolution. I made the point a couple of weeks ago that I think it's the prototype of the French Revolution. I'm not kidding, personally. Just... But that's how far, that's how deeply Shakespeare saw. Okay? That what we're looking at here is Shakespeare's awareness of an aristocratic way of life, something corrupt and incestuous, ingrown, incestuous to that way. And into this world comes the love of a woman whose love cannot be um, separated from virginity, we know that when she gets married, her, she will lose her virginity. But what Shakespeare makes us aware of is that her love is whole prior. It's not contingent on a sexual act. She loves this man. She gives herself completely to him. And in some sense, it seems to me the origins of that are Mary. And typically, we don't see those things in our world. So. I want to look at Merchant. Any, any questions before we go on? Gita, come on. I don't believe you'd have a question. I mean, it's, and I'm just thinking, I mean, even when we get married, we don't really, I don't know, for a woman, I guess, you really have to fall in love and you don't really think about the, you know, the other qualities are important. Yeah. Being being a friend, being gentle, <laughs> being trustworthy. Yeah. You don't really think of sex as you know, as being the main thing. Right? I don't know. I can't. Right. I mean, when you when you say yes, when you get married. Yeah. At least, I mean, I mean. I guess in the beginning, you know, the physical attraction is there, but 
when you say yes to marriage, you are you know, thinking about the whole the life. deeper, the sure. whole life, yes. not yes. just the physical attraction. Yeah. It has to be more than just the... And, and it's funny how guys don't get that. <laughs> I just, you know, and I have young daughters, and guys are just so, they're like, oh, look at my muscles, and look at this, and it's like, uh, yeah, that's not good. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, got, I want to be careful of stereotypes now, because, but, I mean, there's some truth in all these things, but it's, be careful of generalities. But. Yeah, but young men typically don't get the fact that being stable, responsible, kind, I mean, all of that is a lot more attractive if you want to get if, when you're find, looking for a life partner. I want to break this out of a stereotype for a second because this 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 is getting a little bit more personal than I wanted. But I but I believe that I'm not disagreeing with that. But the claim that I would make today, I would make, given given what's happened politically in our climate, because um, the value of home and marriage is demeaned some in the modern world. The family it's been taken away that women have stepped into that same stereotype the way you've described it, or we wouldn't have abortions because those women are not having children because they didn't restrain themselves. We've got millions of abortions because the attitude towards sex in the last hundred years has become so, so open, so careless, so irresponsible on both sides, masculine and feminine. Um, I, I just did, I'm writing something on the movie Unplanned. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Yeah. I, I, I was glad for the movie and really angry, not, not because of the abortion. I, I was angry because of its fundamentalist treatment. If you've seen the movie, you know that at the end, Abby goes, I'm implicated in the death of 20,000. I mean, you, you can't hear that moment and not feel crushed. But my response, I mean, I, it gets me angry to even, I'm, I'm going to stop here because I don't want to get, I'm just going to give myself away here. My question is, where are the, where are the damn men? You know, where are the millions of men? And part of the problem is, the laws make it possible now for a woman to say, and my question is, what's happened that a law gives a woman that right and by implication denies the right of a man? Where are, where are the men? Where are the fathers and husbands of those millions of aborted? What we've done is brought us to such a barbaric low in our, in our civilization on, on the part of both men and women, because we, we take these matters of sex so casually. Sex in the city, women. And that was supposed to be a breakthrough thing because women are going to do what men do. God. Well, women were treated very poorly, so it's like the whole oh, thing. No, it is. It goes back to women being considered objects. Yes. And so you have the whole, that's the trend, that's the other side of it, whether we like it or not. That's the other men, side. Men are hiding. Today, I, I, I believe men and women are both, but, but I just, I mean, we're going to, to go back to the Odyssey at the beginning of things, there's not a question in my mind that men have treated women, but I don't have a, there's not a question in my mind either that women treat, have forever, since the fall, treated men as objects. So um, it's not a black-white, it just is not. Right. Women have always, not in exactly the same way because men and women are different, but men, women have always treated men as objects. If you go back to the literature and look at it seriously, you're going to see there's this estrangement between the sexes. And both sexes, both, whatever the historical circumstances, treat each other as objects. And let me leave it there. I want to go to Merchant because we've got to quickly. Here's the problem. 
I want to underscore this as we get to Othello. Um, when Merchant of Venice opens, the first words, Rene, you, have, have, you don't have to go there, but you can listen. In sooth, I know not why I'm so sad. It wearies me. You say it wearies you. How I caught it, found it, came by it. What stuff is made of, where is it born? I am to learn. Such a want with sadness makes of me that I have much to do and know myself. I've told you before, the opening lines of every Shakespeare play gives away the play. This, this play in Venice opens with the merchant saying, I'm sad. This is not because of economic realities. This is an existential sadness. There's something wrong with this regime. His friends, Soler and Solanio, come up, and both of them say, of course you're sad. If I had all my ventures at sea, I'd be sad too. Is everybody following? They're projecting onto him their own concerns. They're reading him according to their own interests, which are economic. What do they spend all their time doing? Studying the economic page. That is, people are so preoccupied with, with this is so, if we read this place deeply, we learn to see a lot about ourselves. People are so preoccupied with becoming wealthy that they begin to look past each other and friendships suffer. They're too preoccupied with making money and something deeper gets lost. Both of his friends make that clear. Both of them say, if I were, I'd be sad too if I had, and, and, and Tony says, no, no, that's not the reason I'm sad. In fact, remember this line, because I read it to you before. This is Solerio about line 20. What harm a wind too great would do at sea? I mean, thinking about the wind would make me nervous. But I should not see the sandy hourglass run, but I should think of shallows and of flats and see my wealthy Andrew docked in sand, veiling her high top lower than her ribs to kiss her burial. Should I go to church? and see the holy edifice of stone and not bethink me straight of dangerous rocks. So when he goes to church and sees the altar and sees the rocks, where does his mind go? Rocks at sea. Mm -hmm. When you go to church and you look at the altar, where should your mind be? It should be in a timeless order with God in eternity. We're asked to make our judgments there. When we go, it's to be with him in his kingdom it's to forget about these things. How many people go to church, I mean, I can't answer this question, but how many people go to church and cannot get their mind off of business? When we pray, we're supposed to pray trusting, you know, that something from that divine order is in our lives. You remember what happens. Bassanio wants a loan. He goes to Shylock to get the loan. And Shylock says, this is Act 1, line 3, Shylock says, I'll give you the loan um, on condition of a bond, and that bond will be a pound of flesh. Yeah. Which sounds innocuous. Pound of flesh, who cares? What the hell? 150. Bassani says, I'm not going to let you do this for me. And Tony says, fine, my, you know, my, my investments are diversified, no word. Shylock, but Father Abram, what these Christians are, whose own hard dealings, teaches them suspect the thoughts of other, pray you tell me this, if he should break his day, what should I gain by the exaction of his forfeiture? A pound of man's flesh taken from a man is not so estimable, profitable neither, as flesh of muttons, beasts, or goats. I say to buy his favor, I extend his friendship, if he will, so and if not. What does this show us about the commercial regime? Just those lines there. 
money means everything. Life means nothing. Yeah. How valuable is the human body? Think about this across our world. I'm not kidding. How valuable. By, by the way, what is it that makes us human, different from the angels? What, what did Christ glorify by taking on our nature? No matter what anybody else says, he glorified the human body. We, we went through this in Dante. Shylock is saying, pound of flesh, are you kidding? What worth is it? Just can't get any what muffin goats in. So we're watching a reduction of the value of the human body and the dignity of the human person in a commercial regime because what it values is money. And we, we see in those, that same passage, if you remember, is that um, Antonio asked this question, what's, what's the value of doing what you do? Shylock says, money breeds money. There are no families in this world. What's breeding is money. We saw that in Dante at the level of the usurist, remember? The sterile city. Um, money breeds money. That's what preoccupies people. So there's this slow degradation of the human being and his worth. Now quickly to just jump ahead, you know that when they go to court, here's the issue. Antonio's ships don't come in, Shylock takes him to court. Shylock wants to kill him. We, it's not justice, he wants to kill him because he hates him as a Christian. Antonio hates Shylock as a Jew, they hate each other. And moreover, Shylock hates him because he brings the rate of usance down gets less usury because Antonio gives his money freely and it hurts Shylock's business. They're in court. Everybody appeals to Shylock to drop the bond and he won't. Um, and he says, let the city's freedom fall on your head. What happens if they drop the bond? If Shylock just gives it up? Wait, let me turn around. What happens if they enforce it? Antonio's dead, dead yeah. and, no, and nobody will do it again. Why? Die, good. Is everybody clear? If they've got to hold that bond, because if they don't hold that bond, the city's gone. If they do hold it, he's dead. If they do hold it, the city's gone. Because who's going to risk? What do the Christians say? Show mercy, put away the bond. Portia says, I can't do that. Take away the take. Nullify the bond by an act of mercy. What will happen then? The city's gone because who's going to enter into a contract if it's not binding? Is everybody clear? What Shakespeare's doing is going to the very principle of the commercial regime, the importance of law and the danger of making either law or mercy one at the expense of the other. The only way to answer this problem is by bringing both law and mercy together. In our world, how many people do a black-white? How many people do one or the other? They stand by the law with no love, or they offer a love of mercy, which becomes disastrous because it's enabling. We've been doing this for a year. Mercy by itself, pity by itself, enabling. Law by itself, cruel. Portia can do neither because if she does, the city goes down. So what she's, the trial, the trial that she's facing is the same one that Christ faced. She has to bring law and mercy, justice and love together. Now if you remember the play, how does she do that? And here's the crucial thing, because remember, remember, 
Portia, this is Venice. She comes from Belmont. Outside Venice. What does she do? Anybody, does anybody remember? There's something about you can't shed the blood of a Christian, and I didn't quite understand how that all fit in. She said, well, you can have your pound of flesh, but, but you can't believe. You can't shed the blood of a Christian. That's, that's how we do that. A citizen. You can't believe. Mm -hmm. But was it because he was a Christian? Or because no, that was no. later. Ver oh, okay. um, Valerie, flesh that out, can you? Just go through that, can you? Well, it's been a while. I've been this in high school. No, but I, I think she gets out of it because he can't have it. You can't believe, you can't take it to heart, whatever he wants. You can have a pound of flesh, you but cannot you have, have a drop of blood. Oh, that, that's the right. whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That was it. Now so why does she do that? Because then he can't, he can't exact. You can't exact the flesh without the drop of the blood. So what is she doing to uphold the law? Because she knows she's got to hold the law right. without doing what Shylock wants. So what is she doing by the what she does here? Finding a loophole. <laughs> <laughs> I would not want to trust my life in a courtroom with any of you guys here. Portia, yes. We're not lawyers. What does she do? She, she's reading. I mean, you can. It's actually she's loophole. I want to avoid that. She's reading the law, literally being faithful to it. To avoid the bad, the Hard. wrong of it, in order to fulfill what the law was intended to do, which is the good of another human being. So she's got a hold. Here, here's her problem. She's got a hold to that law, and not let Shiloh's motives or the Christians, because the Christians say, "You can't do this. That's cruel. Let him go. Pity." I hope everybody's seen how applicable this is to our daily lives. The the great call for all of us is always to bring those two things together and how hard it is to do. Um, but here, here's where I wanted to go just quickly and then we'll stop. When she's going through the courtroom and working this all out, um, the Christians are trying to get Antonio off. Bassanio, this is Act 4, Scene 1, Bassanio. Antonio, I am married to a wife which is as dear to me as life itself, but life itself, my wife, and all the world are not with me esteemed above thy life. So you're more important to me than my wife. Who's right next to him? His wife. He doesn't know it. I would lose all. I sacrificed them all here to this devil to deliver you. What, by the way, let me look how noble I am as a man, is what he's saying. In my mind, this is no different from the vainglory of Bertram. Look, how, look what a man, look how... How willing I, willing I am to be brave. Portia, your wife would not give you little your wife would give you little thanks for that if she were by to hear you make the offer. Graziano, I have a wife who I protest I love. I would she were in heaven. So she could entreat some power to change this cursed Jew. Nerissa, as well you offer it behind her back, the wish would make else an unquiet house. Shylock, look at I mean Shylock is he's got some legitimate criticism of the Christians through this whole play. Shylock, these be Christian husbands. I have a daughter. Would any of the stock of Barabbas I had been her husband rather than a Christian? My question, quick, and we'll stop here in just a second. What's going on in Venice? You know that when the men, when they get back to Belmont, the women are going to take them apart. 
Because after they leave the courtroom, she's going to ask for, they're going to offer something. She refuses. They offer again, and she says, then give us the rings. And you know that those rings are a pledge of their vows. Again, these vows have been central to everything. They give them the rings. When they get to Belmont, the wives are going to take them to task. Right. Why do you give up the rings? Right. Here's my question, and it's a serious one. I just want to take a minute, and then if we don't have time next week. What is it about this Venetian world that makes these men so light? And why is it a woman? And let me rephrase that. What is it about this regime that makes these women so light? If Portia had gone to law school in Venice and come out of that law school, would she be able to do what she did in this courtroom? She dressed up as a man. Um, probably not. Sorry? She dressed up as a man. You know. She's got the Mercy feminine genius. Why? She would have gone with the rule of the day, the way it was. I would bet but that. But you can transcend that. As a, as a woman, you can transcend. Well, you the can do it as a man, culture, too. Just you know? Yeah. Most women I think do. It would overpower her. Sure. That's the question. Here, let me just go back to one of the things that I want to make. It's really clear when people enter this city, the dynamics. It's a place of trial, it's where envy, pride, those things come out. The question that Helena leaves us with is, she has this wholeness of love, how many men or women do, before she even gets to marriage. If Portia had gone to law school, would her motives have been purely love? Right. And the question I want to ask is this, what Helena shows us is a selfless love, absolutely selfless. It's not conditioned on sex or it's not contingent on anything that exists before marriage. Today, this, the, what rules men and women's marriages generally is social contract. It's the social contract there. I'll do this if you do this for me. It's compromise. Is that a way to define Helena? No. So the question is, could, it, could anybody, male or female, in Venice, bring a, a self-sacrificing love completely outside the political realm in the way that they saw the case? And let me put it more starkly. What we learn from um, Beatrice, from Christ, from Helena, is that love changes the way you see things. You see things differently from somebody not in love. When you have a whole, so I gave the example when you're talking about Helena. Very often, you know, women will say of their girlfriends, what, did, what does she see in that guy? And, and we know that often it can be right. But the other thing to be said, what did Christ see in us? He didn't come here because we deserved it. His love made us aware that we have something in us we very often don't see because we don't love well. What, Port what Portia brings to this courtroom scene is that kind of love. She's completely disinterested in it. What she brings is a wisdom we don't find in Venice. That's one. The second is, why are these men so casual? What is it that's, what, what's going on in Venice that makes these men so light and that sets up a sharper contrast between them and Portia? I don't want to answer it. Next week when we pick up, that's where I want to go, and I want to go to Othello. If anybody's not read Othello, don't get a short, read Othello. <laughs> mm -hmm. Read Othello, and if you don't read it, don't, it's going to be a summary. What I'm going to do is go through... Because what I'm trying to do is just pull together 
some of these qualities at the beginning of the morning. Okay. Mayor, I'm supposed to bring snack next week, and I might be out of town, and I come I'm coming in late. So can I switch with someone else? I'd, I'd, make, a, I'd make a heavy bargain if she's... <laughs> <laughs> a pound of salami. I'm going to wait after that. You'll be after that, so if you want to wait next week, I'm Thank you. I don't have an extra hand. Yeah, I'll, I'll